Hey there, and welcome to the Refuge Podcast. We're a podcast of Crossroads Community Church here in Nampa, Idaho. And here at the church, we believe in being a place of refuge, transformation, and partnership with God. My name is Charlie, and I'm a pastor here at the church. And I'm Scott, and I'm one of the partners here at Crossroads. And we are so pleased today. We have a special guest who was able to share with us this weekend about a sensitive topic, and that is the topic of homosexuality and the church's response and and really dealing with um, homosexuality. And that's Dr. Ewan. Dr. Ewan is a professor at uh, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and he has led a remarkable life. And he and his parents as well were able to come and share with us this weekend. They were there on Sunday morning. They shared all together, and we'll listen to that in just a moment. But then they were also able to be here on Monday night. We're also going to post that on the podcast and uh, really a special kind of really more of a theological discussion. I'd really urge you to watch the video. He had a lot of great slides and scriptures, but we kind of got a whole weekend of really getting to hear from Dr. Ewan, and it was pretty remarkable. It was an amazing weekend. Um, You know, I was at the Monday night uh, service as well, and he just, he has a true heart for God, and he's just very exemplary um, for me. And I really appreciated his testimony. Yeah, I think a lot of people did. I got to be in the parking lot. You know, I do some parking ministry and uh, a lot of people were coming out saying, wow. Yeah, wow. Just learned so much and a lot of grace, a lot of truth, uh, but really also to hear the story of his parents as well. It was pretty incredible. So here's uh, Dr. Ewan sharing on Sunday morning and uh, uh, February 3rd and uh, hope you enjoy it. About a year ago, our staff was back east at a conference and we heard Dr. Ewan speak for the very first time. Beth uh, Stockett leaned over to me and said, can we get this guy at Crossroads? I said, lean ahead on it, sister. And today, uh, this is a result of all the work that Beth has done to uh, bring that about, and you are going to uh, enjoy this time, I'll guarantee it. Because it's not just Dr. Christopher Ewan speaking, but his mother, Angela, and his father, who's also a doctor, and he is, his name is Leon. These three have an amazing story that you are not ever going to forget, I'll guarantee it. But Dr. Uh, Ewan is going to tell his story. He is a, a graduate of, of uh, uh, teaches at Moody for the last 10 years, a graduate of uh, Wheaton, and then uh, got his doctorate of ministry at uh, Bethel. Uh, he's going to tell you a little bit more about the books that they've written today, so I don't want to waste any more time. Let's just have them come right on up. Let's give them a hand, folks. America, where money grows on trees, <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong it was. <laughs> The first night I stayed in my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wear masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> and uh, Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year. 
I also assume just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then after years of unresolved issue and self-centered living. Our marriage was a disaster. So with the encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that year, May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded completely different. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the ultimatum to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher believed he was born gay and the sexuality was the core of who he was. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bag and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife and it would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I have no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian and I felt the need to meet with the minister, he gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I think the last chance for me was to end my life, even though I was not a Christian. So I read, on the train, I read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very excited. She told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side. But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know, God was also work on me. So I started to go to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding of and love for God and his word. It was while studying the Bible that I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As Christopher walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese-American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> you see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house. At nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first sexual encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then I, when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, I need to be clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are promiscuous. Some are, some are not. But that is certainly part of my story, and if I tell you my story, I have to be honest about that. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. So if I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was a threat, no lawsuit. And I would stay in school for three months. Besides, 
isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But the sad reality is, here in America, many people might go to church and worship God on Sunday, but then they will return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k, and in essence, we sometimes make our children do the same. Think about this. Are parents in America putting more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done, getting a good grade, getting into a good school? Or should Christian parents be putting the most emphasis upon their children following Jesus? It's no wonder why many youth that grow up in church go off to college and they leave their faith behind because maybe they weren't really worshiping God in the first place. Nothing is more important than following Jesus. But can I tell you, I was not happy about my mom's decision. <laughs> they weren't on my side. I felt like they were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there, I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a, a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day, because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, <laughs> and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed. Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I know the only way, if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta. So we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call a friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. But I left it on his counter anyway and walked out the door. We found out later he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. It was obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from the Bible Study Fellowship Group, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do 
do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap of Christopher. I was staying until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I was staying in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my tears and fears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expect. His answer for me was, wait, be still and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live all those years waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answered a prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. <laughs> I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I 
tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. <laughs> those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I did not know was that I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. <laughs> and she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember she loves bold prayers? Well, she prayed a bold prayer years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out lavishly his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you're going to believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she realized she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So setting the phone down next to the phone was a calculator, and she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape. And she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place <laughs> compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And after my time in prison, this list is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And can I just tell you, I was doing my very best to stay to myself. I did not want to mingle too much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. <laughs> I was walking around, and I happened to pass by the garbage can. And if you've never been to jail before, they don't take the trash out every day. 
So it was overflowing out of the can. And as I looked at this heap of rubbish, I thought to myself, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the word of God. I wasn't even thinking that this will be the answer to some of my problems. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christmas phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Ever since Christopher was sentenced, we find out he was sentenced to six years in federal prison. The news of this HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang on the phone. The pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumble up the steps 
and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees. A stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul. days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the complete mess that I've made of my life. I lie there on my bed, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. Someone had written something else in the corner, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that 
at that moment, I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like I had no more problems. <laughs> Far from the truth. God was convicting me of my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. Remember, I'm in prison for drugs. That's the most obvious. But within a few months, God delivering from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. I kept reading the Bible, and I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. Remember, I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know that much about the Bible. So I thought, I need to ask someone who's studied the Bible, who's more informed than I am, the chaplain. To my surprise, he told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book explaining that view. So think about it. With a lot of curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, his word, and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I looked through the whole Bible, any shred of evidence. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked <laughs> and I looked and I looked and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexual identity, by not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned a few important lessons. First, I learned that sexual abstinence is actually possible. I know that might sound weird, but the world kept telling me that it's not, but it actually is. Who knew? <laughs> Second, I learned that abstaining from sex is not going to make me psychotic no matter what Freud and Oprah say. <laughs> Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex for a little while that, you know, my sexuality does not have to be the core of who I am. 
I told, you know, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. And that's true. But don't we as sinners, don't we like to add to God's truth? I added, God loves me unconditionally, and then I added, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. I bet you hear this a lot from your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But you know, after reading the Bible several times, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. I had thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become heterosexual. That somehow the more sexually I were attracted to women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to put to death my sin nature every day. So actually, heterosexuality is not the goal. And if you think about it, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm going to be tempted or not, because I will be. Jesus himself was tempted in every way. What makes us think we won't be tempted? doesn't matter. The main thing isn't whether I'm struggling or not, because I will struggle. But the, what, the biggest issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began, uh, because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them collect to my parents, and I told them I think God's calling me into ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> <laughs> they mailed the application into prison. I was so excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out, till I got to the last page where they asked me for references. <laughs> Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, amazingly Moody asked actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So 
imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in biblical exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, got my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then in 2011, I had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote chapter three. She wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. And the best part is how God and his power and his grace brought us all back together. This book now is in seven different languages, from Spanish, Korean, Chinese, and also in the back of every one of these books is a free eight-week discussion guide that uh, small groups are using, uh, support groups, and we found out lately that Christian high schools are using our book as a textbook. Who would have thought that? You know, we just wrote our story thinking we're just giving, you know, it's, it's for, you know, kind of the church at large, but... We never thought that it would be used as a textbook. But it makes sense. Because I hope you realize this. Our kids, our grandkids, they are being flooded, inundated with resources on sexuality. And they're, and they're all from a non-Christian worldview. Starting from kindergarten. Now, they don't have to tell you, parents, because, of course, parents, you're ignorant and you wouldn't know better. You know the responsibility to teach our youth sex education does not and should not rest on the shoulders of the public schools. I don't know if you heard me. Maybe one or two of you heard me. The primary responsibility to teach our children, our youth, about sex and sexuality does not rest in the hands and should not rest in the hands of the public schools. Amen? Amen. And actually, it also doesn't rest in the hands of the youth pastor. As much as a youth pastor should talk about sex, the pastor should not take that responsibility away from where it should rest primarily. Where should it rest? Parents. And I'm going to add something for those of you that think, oh, I'm free. Also, grandparents. Why? Think back, grandparents, when you were younger, when you were, when you were teenagers. <laughs> Did you listen? It's a long time ago, I know. Did you listen? much to your parents. I think teenagers, though they might not listen to parents, the grandparents might have more of a listening ear to the teenagers than the parents do. Are we using it for God's glory? One time, and I told this in the first service, we were at this other church and um, we gave our message and challenged the parents and grandparents. And this grandmother went out to our book table and she's like, I want 10 books. She was like the first one there. I want 10 books. I'm like, you just need one. No, young man, I need 10. <laughs> one for myself, 
nine for my grandchildren. And she said, I'm going to personally mail every one of my grandchildren a book. I'm going to read it with them, and then I'm going to discuss it with them. That's a grandmother that's taking seriously and not giving it away to the world, taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to equip, not expose, but equip our youth on biblical sexuality. Silence is no longer an option. If you don't talk to your kids about sex and sexuality on a consistent basis, not just once in their life, on a consistent basis, I promise you the world will. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. My next book is called, or my next, my, I keep saying next, my newest book came out in November. It's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Essentially, our first book was kind of uh, hitting the heart and um, telling about our story. And the second book, this one, digs deeper and helps flesh out this concept of holy sexuality. Not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, but holy sexuality. God's vision for all, because holy sexuality is good news for everyone. And so we flesh that, I flesh that out here in this book uh, to give help us to think right before we do right. Because the problem is, here in our world today, we have many people that want to, and even uh, leaders in, you know, in Christian community that want to kind of do right, and they want to reach out to the gay community. So they're like, we just need to love. But then the problem is, what does that love look like? Because you can jump in and try to do right, but if you don't think right, you might be doing wrong. Not all love is the same, because love isn't equivalent to acceptance. God loves us, and he does not accept our behavior. God loves us Like Pastor said, while we were sinners, while we were powerless, while we were his enemies, God loved us. That is God love. Love is costly. Love is holy. And if it's not those things, that's not love. So I wanted to kind of build that love is actually has to be standing on the foundation of truth. Because if you don't have that truth, there is no love. Um, you know, God really has a sense of humor because uh, after all this, he's brought me back to Moody where I'm now teaching in the Bible department and theology department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. You know, I look back upon my life, our lives, years, decades, far, far apart from Christ. And I see that I've actually made a lot of bad decisions, some that have resulted in some big consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But here's the reality. I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room, young or old, is promised tomorrow here on this good earth. And you know it took contracting HIV for me to realize 
profound truth. That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. Can I tell you something? This, this world we live in today, 2019, it's a crazy world. I mean, our country, we're like almost at war with one another. We look around, I mean, there's shootings, there's fires, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, Arctic cold. We go overseas and we see threat of terrorism, threat of nuclear war, orphans, widows, disease. When I look at the world today, I'm convinced this world doesn't need another good Christian, a good Christian who might go to church every Sunday, nice person, but doing little for the kingdom of heaven. This world doesn't need another good Christian. But what this world needs, what this world demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't really care what the person on the left says or the person on the right says, but they care what their heavenly father says. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. Our days are numbered. Are we squandering them or are we pursuing God above all else? Because let me tell you, there will come one day in the blink of an eye where every one of us will stand before our God, our creator. And my hope is that he can look in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Wow. I mean, I just kept, I just feel like every, every time I've heard him talk and especially being able to hear the full story with his parents as well, uh, just wow. And uh, thank you. Thank you to the Ewan family for coming out and being a part of our services and visiting with us and uh, just really incredible. I was so amazed. I went on YouTube for days and days after he came and I just was you know, watching all the, 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 the videos that I could, soaking in all the information from him. We bought the books and God is great, isn't he? He is. And it's pretty cool to me. I think one of the things that was really incredible uh, and obviously, you know, Christopher was incredible and his story is incredible, but really the role his mother played mm. being a prayerful woman and really contending for Christopher in prayer. And I just love her prayer of really giving Christopher up to God and asking God to do whatever it took. And I mean, that's a brave prayer. You know, Scott, you and I are both fathers, and I think it's just cool to really hear that from that standpoint as, you know, we both mm -hmm. have children that are younger than Christopher. And, you know, I'm sure you pray for your children and I pray for my child. You know, mm -hmm. God, I want to give him up to you. But at the same time, that's so scary to pray that. But she really prayed it in a powerful way and got to see the power of God. Yeah, I mean, thinking, would I be willing to pray that if I knew my son was going to go to jail, had to go to jail to, for that? I mean, look what Christopher. And I'm thinking, man, what kind of faith would that I mean, what a lady. Yeah. I think I learned so much from her, just her faithfulness in that prayer and uh, really how God worked that out in a way that he knew. 
he knew who Christopher was. He knew what, what it would take for Christopher to really come to know him. And even if it meant getting him to jail, you know, uh, so that he could encounter God in a real way. And now it's pretty cool to see, you know, what he's doing with his life. And obviously um, pretty incredible in terms of theological mind. We didn't get to hear that so much today, but um, the Monday after that, you know, we got to hear more really from a theological standpoint. And it was really impressive. I think one of the cool things that he really talked about was really not differentiating between homosexuality and other sin, the, mm. the, especially sexual sin. What it is, is it's worshiping the creation instead of worshiping the creator. And that's where the real sin, uh, that's where it happens, that there's no worse or better in terms of sexual sin when it comes to homosexuality. Isn't, isn't that the truth? I mean, all sexual sin, I mean, and, and even Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery. No, they're, they're all the same. And so that was, that's so powerful. And that's something we need to keep emphasizing is that s- sexual sin is sexual sin. And we can't treat uh, one group of sexual sin worse than the other. It, it's because it's not true. Yeah, and I think we alienate so much. I think, like you said, Jesus said, you know, if you look at a woman, that's sin. And so I think for all of us, we can look at those in the gay community, those who struggle with same-sex attraction, and say you are absolutely welcome in our church, that there's nothing that you've done that is better or worse um, than things that others in our church have done. Uh, This is a place that you can find refuge, that you can find a home, and most importantly, a place that we believe you're going to encounter God. I think so often we we get it mixed up that we're going to convince people who struggle with this sin and who live this lifestyle. We're going to convince them of who God is, and then they're going to fa- you know fix their behavior, and then they're going to find God. But in reality, they need to come to a working knowledge of really who Jesus is. And once they know how Christ feels about them, then they can work out the changes that need to be made in their lifestyle, the the convictions about sexual sin that we find in Scripture. The same thing I'm doing with my sin today. I. I still I struggle with sin, and I mean, yeah, that's the same thing with I'm sure you and everybody. No, I don't actually don't struggle. Oh, you don't. Okay, well, no, I forgot about I, that. Yeah. Show. <laughs> no, of course I do. No, it's a great point, Scott. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the it's, it's no different process for the homosexual than that the heterosexual who struggles with sin. It, it's all the same. We're going through the same. Pro- we're in the same sinking boat uh needing the same lifeline yep needing the same savior and so Uh if you're listening to this podcast and you're living in the napa area or or you aren't but you've been listening to our podcast and checking out our church and just know that you are welcome here and if you're a member of our church who is struggling with this silently just know that there are safe places where you can come and you can find healing and you can be honest and you're not going to be judged as better or as worse because we believe that christ came for all that he died for all and that his sin and his sacrifice was made once and for all and so we are so thankful and we are all in need of his grace and that's what bonds us together and that's what keeps us together in unity is that we need the same savior and so as you're listening today we hope you're blessed hope you have a great week and we look forward to seeing you next week